If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. Um, if you don't, the scripture we're going to be looking at is in your bulletin on page 6. There's a place to take notes on page 7. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. So friends, listen. These are the words of Christ. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. So friends, what we see today, this is the, this is the response to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I know it's gone. Sorry. If you didn't see it then, you missed it. Now, this is the response of the people to the Sermon on the Mount. There we go. There you go. Um, it's the end of his sermon, but it's the beginning of how people responded to him. Okay, so Jesus is up for three chapters teaching truth, and now we see what the response was. Now we see how people reacted. And so, whether you're a Christian or not, seeing the way that the crowds and the people responded to Jesus will help you, give you an opportunity to say, how, how do I respond to Jesus? What do I think about Jesus? And is how I'm currently responding the way I want to continue to respond? And so, so many people today think that Jesus is a great teacher. He's a great teacher. So many people would say that, and Honestly, that's true. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was so much more than that. He was so much more. Jesus, when he came to earth, he had a mission. Right? He had a mission to do two things. So I know a lot of you, you create your to-do list, beginning of the week, beginning of the day. Well, Jesus had a to-do list. It had two things on it. Jesus' to-do list. First, overcome sin, death, and evil. And that's why he came. He came to overcome, to overpower the forces of evil, the, the sinfulness in the world, the selfishness in the world. He came to overcome those things in his death and resurrection. Right? He came to save the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that anybody who believes in him won't perish in judgment, but will have everlasting life. But there was another thing on Jesus' to-do list. That was to make disciples. To make disciples. Jesus wanted to gather and train disciples to make people who could experience his kingdom, who could experience this, and who would then take this message to the rest of the world. Okay, and so all that Jesus did before his first objective, everything he did before he did this, before he died and rose again, Everything that Jesus did was for this. Okay? So all of Jesus' teachings, all of his miracles, all of Jesus' sermons, all of his healings, all of his exorcisms, all of the actions that Jesus undertook, everything that Jesus did before he died and rose again was designed to make disciples. Okay? It was designed, it was him mentoring them. 
And so what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? If Jesus is going to make us disciples or make disciples, what does that mean? Well, to follow Jesus means to be a disciple. And the Bible describes disciples really in three ways. It says disciples are learners, followers, and they're sent ones. Learners, followers, and sent ones. They're sent on a mission. And we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at what does it mean to be a disciple. Okay, we're going to look at these three things over the next three weeks. Now that we've heard the Sermon on the Mount, it's our chance to respond. And do we want to become a follower of Jesus? Do we want to become disciples? Or if we are disciples, how do we grow and become better, stronger, more mature, uh, more effective disciples of Jesus? And so today, uh, we're going to look at the first one of these three things. We're going to see that disciples are learners. Okay, disciples are learners. So first and foremost, disciples are learners. The word disciple actually was a common word used in Jesus' day. It wasn't like a a special Christian term like it kind of is now. It it sometimes gets used. People use the word disciple. But it just meant to be a learner. To be a learner. So it was someone who had chosen to be mentored by someone else. That was, they were their disciple. So if you said, hey, I want you to teach me, I want to learn from you um, in sort of trade, you know, where you, you have an apprentice, same kind of thing. Sometimes the word apprentice is used. So a disciple is a learner. Someone who's being mentored by someone else. And in Jesus' day, a lot of times rabbis, you know, were the main teachers and they had disciples. And so Jesus was called a rabbi um, and he had, he, so he's making disciples. And so following Jesus means to learn from him. Okay, so this is in one sense the counterpart to Jesus being a great teacher. If you think Jesus is a great teacher, well then there would be a call for you to learn from him. Um, following him means to learn from him. And it's interesting because I don't know what you think about when you think about the idea of learning from Jesus. You know, maybe you think, yeah, especially if you were alive at that time, it means sitting down in front of Jesus and Jesus lecturing and giving you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commandments to memorize, things to do, things not to do. That's not how it was. That's not at all how it was. In fact, I read um, an article that, that one pastor wrote on, on what it was like to follow Jesus, and this is what he said. He said, we tend to focus on the tough stuff, rebuke, poverty, martyrdom, but sometimes we miss the appeal of a three-year road trip with the Son of God. like that. So they learned together. They traveled together. They faced death together. In some ways, it was like the best of summer camp, a fishing trip, and the bus ride home after winning a game all rolled up into one long adventure. How amazing would that have been to be a follower of Jesus? He goes on, he says, I think in part that's why each member of the group, with one notable exception, gladly gave his life for the cause. Not only because he believed in the gospel, but because he had experienced the gospel in the context of life-giving community. It's a band of brothers. It's a band of brothers. He said there's something deeply appealing to being on an adventure with a group of people that you love. That's why guys go fishing, hunting, and mountain climbing together. The locker room camaraderie touches a deep spiritual need in each one of us. A need to connect, to belong, to risk it all for the good of the group. 
good. That's what it would have been like back then. And, and I want to say that it is still an adventure to follow Jesus in our day and age. It's still, to be a disciple, to be a learner of Jesus is an adventure. Um, what's exciting is that you, there aren't the risks at this point of having to give your life. You know, no one's going to come in and shoot you if you don't deny Jesus. At least not now. Um, at least not in our part of the world, although that is still happening in some places. Um, and so we don't have to deal with that. And I guess maybe like the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So at this point, there's no risk of martyrdom, but you also don't get to do the miracles. So that's kind of the trade-off. So 2,000 years removed, benefit, no one's going to kill you for following Jesus, downside, no miracles. I know for me, learning from Jesus has been an incredible adventure. Long before I became a pastor, long before I became a pastor, I fell in love with the Bible. I fell in love with this book. I mean, this book has become food and drink for me. This book has changed me in so many radical, wonderful ways. And I still remember the first time I opened it up. I still remember the first time I began to crack it and read it. And some stuff was like, I have no idea what this is talking about. <laughs> you know, that's how it's like to read the Bible. But then other times, I thought, wow, like, this is God speaking to me. Like, this is really applicable to my life. You know, I learned, I remember learning that I could have a real, ongoing relationship with God. I remember learning that. I remember not knowing that. In fact, a couple weeks ago, somebody came up to me after the service, and they said, you know, I'm a little bit startled because I've been around church for, like, I've been around Harbor for about five years. And I got to tell you that I never knew that we were supposed to have a relationship with God. I thought, you know, I understood the obedience piece. I understood, and I'm thinking, wow, like, that's really interesting. You know, this, but, and I said, well, I still remember the first day I learned that. And it was so amazing. My mind was blown that God would want to know me. Right? I mean, I think about the president. The president of the United States, he wants to make decisions, you know, that are going to help benefit my life. At least those are the promises that get made on every side of the aisle. And yet, like, I'm not, I don't expect him to care personally, you know? I mean, I just get it. And yet God, God, who is perfect, who is holy, who is so big and grand that the Bible says he sits in the heavens and puts his feet up on the earth, right? Who he is, and yet he cares about me, and he wants to know me. He wants to spend time with me every day. Like, what a blessing. What an amazing privilege. I remember learning about that. And I just didn't know. I didn't know that I could know God that way. But that's what it means to learn from Jesus. You know, and it's funny because I'm not sure, it's tough for me to think through like where I've learned more. Um, whether I've learned more from Jesus directly, like from reading the Bible, praying, um, or if I've learned more from other people. You know, do you feel that way? I mean, I think about the relationships that I've had, sometimes friendships, sometimes books that I've read, scholars. I mean, it's crazy that not only has Jesus taught me personally through reading the Bible, through praying, but Jesus has taught me. I've learned from Jesus through 
brothers, sisters in the faith. Right? And it's this amazing combination that God has, has built into the world. Like learning from Jesus includes both the Bible and community. And the Bible says that learning from Jesus, it revives our souls. It breathes life into your dilapidated heart. It makes us wise. It rejoices the heart. The Bible says that learning from Jesus comes with great reward, both in this life and in the life to come. These are reasons why we want to learn from Jesus. In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. And you think, okay, yeah, I want to grow. There's areas in my life that, man, I just, I wish were different. There's parts of me that I wish were different. There's parts of me that I hate. There are things about me that are wrong and I wish were different. And so the Bible says, don't be conformed. Don't be like the world, but be transformed. How? That verse goes on to say, by the renewing of your mind. So if you want to know how to grow, how to be transformed, one of the ways the Bible teaches us to be transformed is through the renewing of your mind. When you learn from Jesus, you'll learn things about him that you didn't know. You'll learn things about yourself that you didn't know. When you learn from Jesus, he transforms your mind. It changes who you are. In the Bible, the mind and the heart really go together. And you grow. So, that, so learning from Jesus changes us. And then we've got the verse that we looked at before with the confession. Look at this. Jesus says, come to me, all you are who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So Jesus invites us to be his disciples, to be learners. He says, come and learn. Because you know what? If you feel like you're in a rat race, if you feel like you're never good enough, or if you feel like there's no rest for the weary, if you feel like no matter how hard you try, you feel like you're still in the same place, you feel like no matter what you do, you always, someone's always demanding more, then Jesus says, look, come and spend time with me. Come learn from me, and I'll give you rest. I'll teach you how to get out of that rat wheel so that you can rest. That's motivation to, to learn from Jesus. He's a great teacher. Following him means learning from him, but it, it's more than learning, right? It's more than learning because Jesus is more than just a teacher. And we see that in our verses. So the second thing we're going to see is astonishment and authority. So disciples are learners. And after these folks had learned from Jesus, their response, verse 28, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, how did the scribes teach and how's Jesus different? Right, we've got to answer that question if we want to understand what's being said here. Why were the crowds so astonished at Jesus? How was he different? Well, the scribes in Jesus' day, um, they had a method of teaching. Um, and I've got to give you a little bit of history here. After the Old Testament was written, so when the book of Malachi was written, um, after that, 
rabbis and scribes and scholars that were Jewish began to explain and interpret the Bible, right? So they have the Old Testament, they're explaining it, they're interpreting it, they're teaching it to people. And it's interesting because what happened was this created, this teaching created this huge amount of oral tradition. So you've got your Bible, and then you have what became this oral tradition. Like, oh, this is what Rabbi Hillel said, or this is what Rabbi Shammai said, or this is what Rabbi so-and-so said. And you had this huge groups of tradition. When it was finally written down, um, which was written down actually after Jesus, um, after Jesus' days, when it was finally all written down, it was called the Mishnah. Okay, and it's still, it's still around. Um, I think one person said that if you wrote the English version of the Mishnah, it was about 800 pages long. So big, long, lots of lots of commentary, lots of interpretations. And so what the scribes did is that when they were trying to teach something, when they were trying to tell people what to do, they would always appeal and quote these other traditions. Okay, so you've got the Bible, and then you've got these traditions. And when the scribes of Jesus' day taught, they would say, well, this is what you should do because Rabbi Hillel says this, because Rabbi Shemei says this, because Rabbi so-and-so says this, right? And so that's how they would teach. And all of their authority was derived from the teachings of previous rabbis. So it's kind of like a name-dropping technique, okay? So if you've been around Harbor at all, well, Dick Kaufman said this, you know? Um, so they, they would name drop, and that's how they got their authority. But in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that if you hate your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Right? He said that over and over and over again. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, you've heard all of these rabbis. You've been exposed to this oral tradition. But I say to you this. When Jesus taught, he didn't teach like the scribes. Jesus' teaching had authority. It had authority. Jesus says, I say to you. And it's interesting, because if you read in the rest of the book of Matthew, there are times when Jesus would teach something, people are like, man, where did he get this authority? On what authority do you do these things? Right? And so this question of authority comes up. That's another big thing that we've got to understand. We've got to understand what authority meant. Um, in the Bible, when Jesus, when, when it says that he was teaching them as one who had authority, man, what this meant was this, was, this was kingship. This wasn't just like, hey, you should listen to me, but to say that Jesus was teaching as though, as though he had authority, they were saying Jesus was teaching them as though he were the king. Okay? And, and let me show you. I I think I have this verse here. Yes. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Have you ever read the Bible and the phrase, the Son of Man comes up? What is that? Huh? Is that, oh, some people say, oh, that just means Jesus is human. When it says Son of Man, it's human. When it says Son of God, that's talking about Jesus being divine. That's wrong. That's not true. If you want to know what it means to be the Son of Man, 
It's from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Okay, this is a vision that the prophet Daniel had 700 years before Jesus came. Okay, and this is what it says. This is Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Every time you see it in the New Testament, this is what it's talking about. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, when anybody calls himself the son of man, they're saying that I am the one that Daniel saw in the vision. Okay? It's kind of exciting. So, I, uh, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. This is God. Okay? The Ancient of Days is God. So, son of man comes, he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion. This word dominion is the same word as authority in our, in our passage. Okay? So it's the first word in a list. So the rest of the list is going to help us understand what it means to have dominion. Okay? Y'all tracking? Son of man comes to God, and to him, to the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, when they say, oh man, this guy, he's teaching like someone with authority, they're saying that this guy is teaching as though he is the king that God has crowned to rule the earth. Are you with me? This is what they're saying. He teaches as one who has dominion. And this is the dominion that we're talking about. God gave Jesus this authority. This is the coronation. And it's interesting because in the story of Jesus at his baptism... It says, this is my son whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. That was a quote from Psalm 2, which was the coronation of the king of Israel. So at Jesus' baptism, he was crowned king of God's kingdom. And then he teaches. And they say, man, this guy's teaching as though he is a king. And they were astonished. I mean, wouldn't you be? They were astonished. They were beside themselves. They were people, they're like, wait, 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 huh? Where's this guy from? Like, who is this guy? What is he, really? The king. The king. He's talking like the king. He's teaching like that. He's teaching as though he's in charge of God's kingdom. And they were astonished. And it's interesting, because if you think back over the Sermon on the Mount, you want to talk about authority. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Do you know what it means? Do you know what blessed means? I mean, it means happy in one sense. But it also, the word blessed, we're talking about the judgments of God. The covenant sanctions. God is in relationship with people by a covenant. Okay? And so for Jesus, when you have a covenant with God, there's two ways it can go. You can either be blessed or you can be cursed. That's right. And Jesus is standing up and saying, actually he sat down. 
Jesus sat down, because that's what the rabbis did. They sat down, and he said, let me tell you who's in and who's out. Blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these. You are in my kingdom if you're poor in spirit, if you mourn, if you're meek, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you're merciful, if you're pure in heart, uh, if you're a peacemaker, and if you're persecuted. If this characterizes your life, then God is on your side. That you're on God's side. That's authority. That's authority. Jesus gets to determine who's in and who's out. Only the king can do that. But he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. I mean, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. Excuse me? Jesus says, I have come to be its definitive interpreter. You want to know what the Bible says? I will tell you. You've heard it said, but I say to you, right? This is authority, the authority of Jesus. And Jesus says, here's how to pray. Here's how to pray. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know how to talk to God? Do it this way. That's authority. You know what? And this is only good teaching if it's true. If it's not true, then Jesus' teaching is harmful, intolerant lies that spread hatred, right? Man. And so the crowd was astonished. They were amazed and astounded at his teaching. One author said this, the crowd had never heard such comprehensive, insightful words of wisdom, depth, insight, and profundity. They had never heard such straightforward and fearless denunciation of religion. They'd never heard such a powerful and demanding description of true righteousness or such a relentless description and condemnation of self-righteousness. So learning from Jesus... If you read the Bible and sometimes you run into something and you think, oh man, then you've probably understood it. Because there are times when we are astonished. Astonished by Jesus. So Jesus is astonishing in his authority. The third thing we're going to look at is the goal. right? If disciples learn from Jesus, and Jesus has incredible authority that is astonishing. What's the purpose of our learning? And on this, I, I want to do something kind of, well, this is fun for me, and if you like seeing how the Bible fits together, this will be fun for you. If you don't, then you're going to get to watch someone who really enjoys understanding how the Bible's put together, right? So the first phrase it's interesting. The first phrase in verse 28, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings. That's a throwaway phrase, right? It doesn't mean anything. Right? It's just there to sort of help us transition from Jesus' words to the response. Well, the first time you read Matthew, that's what you think. Because you just don't know yet, because you haven't read the rest. Okay? Have you, ever been, have you ever been reading the Bible, especially a book that's 28 chapters like Matthew, and you kind of feel like you're lost? Like, wait a sec. Um, all right, so Jesus is healing. 
then he's taught, and I'm not sure where he is anymore, and like, what's really going on? This feels kind of like a hodgepodge, right? Matthew has this giant whiteboard full of all these different miracles and teachings and stuff, and he's like, oh, he's like throwing darts at it, you know, and he hits one, okay, I'm going to put that one in next, right? And one author said that sometimes reading Matthew can be like trying to climb up a mountain and the fog descends over it, you know, and you're just not sure where you are. You know, you kind of know you're still going up, but you, you sort of, I don't know where I am, I'm not sure where I'm going, I'm not sure what the pathway is. Well, this phrase is a throwaway phrase the first time you read it, but, but, then you get, let me, let me just show you this. Um, so this is Jesus' teaching in Matthew. In 728, we see when Jesus finished these sayings, and then you keep reading, and then you find out in chapters 10 and 11, or in chapter 10, it's this really long discourse of Jesus' teachings. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. And you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. That sounds like what they said the last time Jesus was done teaching. And then you get to chapter 13, after this long, long chapter with all the parables of Jesus, where he's talking about the kingdom and what it's like. It says then, in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables. And you think, hey, you know what, especially in an oral culture, I remember when the reader said that when Jesus finished these, these sayings, when Jesus had finished the instructing, when Jesus had finished these sayings, you're like, hey, I think maybe this is a pathway. Maybe this is something. And then you find it again in chapter 19, after these long discourse of Jesus, when Jesus had finished these sayings. And then again in chapter 26, near the end of the book, near the end of the story, when the only thing left for Jesus is to go back and do number one on his to-do list. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So the teaching is done. The teaching is done. He puts a check next to the second thing on his to-do list, and then he's head down, head down focused on his hour to save the world, to rescue us. And so you look at this, and so I just think, I don't even care if there's a reason or anything, I just think this is cool. <laughs> it's just cool, because it, gives us, it gets us closer to the author's intent, right? Clearly, this is Matthew helping us along the way, saying, okay, we just finished a major section of Jesus' teaching. Okay, we just finished another major section of Jesus' teaching. We just, okay, so I just think that's cool. And reading through, you'll kind of go, okay, yeah, yeah, I get my bearings now. Here's what's interesting is that if you were alive in Jesus' day and you were reading a book, and in this book there were five main blocks of teaching. Especially if you were a Jew at the time, and Matthew was written to Jews, you would start thinking, let's see, five blocks of teaching, five blocks of teaching. Oh. Oh. You know what? I grew up learning that the greatest figure in Judaism is Moses. And guess how many books Moses wrote? Five. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible called the instruction of the Lord, or the, or the law. Right? And so I'd think, oh man, that's interesting. Five blocks of teaching, five blocks of teaching, Jesus, Moses, Jesus, Moses, Jesus, Moses. And some of you are skeptics, right? You think, oh come on, like really? That's a stretch. And you would be right to do that, because just based on this, there's not enough there. But then you think, wait, hold on, what else have we learned from Matthew's gospel? How does it start? Let's see, when Jesus is born, 
Jesus is born, and the king in charge doesn't want Jesus alive. And so the king in charge kills all of the babies that are Jesus' age and younger. Hey, that's what happened when Moses was born. That's interesting. Let's see. When Moses came to save his people, he led them through the waters of the Red Sea. And the Spirit was there parting the waters. Well, let's see. In chapter 3 of Matthew, we see Jesus enter into the water of the Jordan River to be baptized. And the Spirit shows up. And then Moses, back to Moses, Moses then leads Israel for 40 years through the desert. In chapter 4 of Matthew, Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. And you start thinking, hey, maybe this isn't just a coincidence. Maybe there is something here, right? And then the next thing Moses does, he goes up onto Mount Sinai and receives the instruction of the Lord and delivers it to the people. And so in chapter 5, Jesus then preaches the Sermon on the... Sermon on the what? On the Mount... Friends, friends, I mean, this is not a coincidence. Matthew is teaching us something about Jesus. Matthew is teaching us not that Jesus is a great teacher, although he is that, he's so much more, but Jesus is like Moses, but only better. Jesus is like Moses, only better. What was Moses' greatest contribution to the world? Free his people, Ten Commandments. I mean, it's interesting, like, if you think it's just the, the law, then you haven't understood the law. Because when the Ten Commandments were given, they were part of a covenant. Moses was the mediator of a covenant between God and his people. Moses stood in between God and the people, and he was the mediator of a covenant where God said, I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God. I want a relationship with you. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to learn from Jesus, there is a goal to Jesus' instruction. It's not that you would think he's a great teacher, but Jesus' goal is that you would have a relationship with God. It's not about the golden rule. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. It's not about religion. It's about relationship with God. Because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, of a new relationship between God and his people. And I think this really helps us because in 2 Timothy 3, verse 6 and 7, it talks about people that struggle. It talks about people who struggle, and their struggling involves learning. Okay, it says, people are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Do you ever feel that way? Like, the more I learn, it doesn't do anything for me. Like, I just can't get it. I just can't get it. Like, nothing changes. Well, 1 Timothy 1.5 says, look, here's the aim. The aim of our instruction, the goal, the end result, the purpose of our instruction, the reason why you want to learn from Jesus, the aim of our instruction is love. This is why we learn. If you want to be a learner, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, 
the goal. Jesus will not rest until his instruction, his instruction in your life leads you to love. The goal of our instruction is love. Love for God. Because we're talking about a relationship. And then love for people. Love for your spouse. Love for your co-workers. Love for your kids. Patient love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, for me, there's a bit of a challenge here. Because if I'm honest, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith means that I need to love somebody from a pure heart. <sighs> My heart doesn't feel very pure a lot of the time. A good conscience? Well, I mean, if we're going to try to do the scale thing, maybe I could pile up enough to sort of maybe kind of make a dent in the scale of, you know, things that accuse me in my conscience. Um, I'll tell you what, I said before that when Jesus went to the cross, when he did that, when he went to do the first thing on his to-do list, right? There's two things on Jesus' to-do list. He came to save the world. He came to train and make disciples, Right? And I said, once he was done making disciples, then he went to the cross. Not quite true. I actually think that the greatest thing that Jesus did to make disciples was to go to the cross. Jesus' greatest lesson, his greatest teaching, his most transformative act was to go to the cross. If you want to know what God is like, I mean, really, if you want to know what God is like, God, I think, is most clearly demonstrated on the cross of Jesus. Because in that place, Jesus said, there is no greater love. No one can love anybody more than this than he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus taught us how much he loves us. Jesus took all of our sins and suffered so that we could be forgiven. If you want to have a relationship with God, you just need to trust Jesus. You learn from Jesus. This is what he did and why he did it. He came to die so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could find rest because God says, not do, do, do. God says, it's been done. Jesus has done it for you. That is how you can rest. That's how you rest. And when you trust Jesus that way, what's amazing is, that's what it means to have a sincere faith. And when you have a sincere faith, this is where your good conscience comes. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did for you. It's his death that cleanses your conscience. And he gives you his heart. He gives you his heart. If you believe in Jesus, he takes out your old heart and gives you his own so that the love that he has for you, you now have for others. This is why we want to learn from Jesus.
and it puts us into an adventure. It's not easy. It's not easy, but it can be, I mean, it can be really fun to look in and to see Jesus' love in you. That's what you need to look to, to, do, to, to I mean, to, to love the folks in your life, to love the people around you. This is it. If you make that commitment, James Boyce said, then he will do for you all that he has promised. Jesus will make you blessed in the sense given in the words in the Beatitudes. Jesus will make you the salt of the earth. He'll make you a light in his dark world. He will interpret the scriptures to you through the Holy Spirit. He will teach you to pray. He will carry you through all the cares and tumults of this life to an eternity of unbroken fellowship with him. That's good news. Let's learn from him this week. Pray with me.